Good morning. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. My name is Mark. I'm the pastor in training here, and it's my privilege to, to welcome you here on this sunny Sunday morning, uh, and it's an exciting Sunday morning. Um, we have two baptisms here this morning, and if you're a visitor here and have never witnessed a baptism, then you're in for something that is actually quite an emotional spectacle in many ways, and it might seem quite strange, but that will get explained for you later on if this is new to you. If you have witnessed baptisms before, then you know you're in for um, something that is quite a powerful display of what Christians call the gospel. Um, and this is at the heart of why we gather, the gospel, good news for bad people, what, what Jesus has done to, to rescue us the reading is from Mark 8, verses 27 to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And when he comes in the glory of his Father with his only holy angels. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in praise and thanksgiving for this, your word. And we ask that you would now bless Duncan as he speaks to us, revealing more of the gospel message. Please, Father, also, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. And uh, 
do, if you can, have those verses in front of you. You'll see there's a, as maybe already been said since I was out of the room, but there's an additional handout in the, in the diary with those verses on it. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, um, but there are a lot of opinions out there. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter what the subject matter is. It can be something that actually you didn't have any reason to ever think someone would have any reason to debate it. But an opposing view will exist for pretty much everything under the sun. So whether that's the the Flat Earth Society or the the moon landing deniers, um, and that's before you start asking people's opinions on individuals. Like, what do you think of Sunak? What do you think of Sturgeon? I mean, these are ways to divide a room, aren't they? What do you think of Mr. Putin, boy? Everyone has an opinion, and those opinions have never been more easily broadcast, and I think for many of us it can be very hard to know if we're forming our opinions based on good or flimsy evidence. Now, I want to be as upfront as I can be with you today. We're going to be controversial this morning. I am going to ask you, within your own head, to decide what your opinion is of the single most divisive person of all time. We're going to dare to talk about the most divisive person who ever walked the face of the earth today. Even mentioning his name can stir up deep emotions, some positive, some negative. But I hope to show you today that this is not being controversial for the sake of it, but actually because this person is the most important person whom you simply have to meet. Today we're seeking the real Jesus Christ. And this inability to know if we're basing our opinions on good or flimsy evidence is the case when it comes to Jesus too. And that's not just a symptom of our age. These verses that Anne read for us in Mark chapter 8 tell us of an interaction between Jesus and his disciples where Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? In other words, what are the opinions out there about me, is what he says. And the answers have a little bit of variety to them. We'll look at them in a moment. But what we're doing today is what I would urge everyone to do, is to actually look and see for yourself. The book of Mark that we're reading from is is one of the Gospels. It was the first of the Gospels written about 30 years after these events that they describe. And they describe for us the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how we can be helped to cut through the fables, the straw men, the false accusations, the fake news, and where you can come and make up your own mind. And as we come to these verses, well, maybe we'll be made uncomfortable as we look for the real Jesus. So you see in verse 28, the varied opinions that come back, who do people say Jesus is? Well, the disciples say, 
John the Baptist, some people say that. Other people say Elijah. And uh, other people simply say, well, he, he, he's one of the prophets. And even though there is some variety in the answers, they're not that varied, actually, because each of those names are prophets, people who were God's spokesmen. And it's as if their disciples say, yes, the people in what they've heard about you, they can tell that you speak for God, that the way that you speak has some authority to it. But nobody seemed to go much beyond that. And I don't know, what do you think the answer would be if we asked the same question today? If Jesus was to say, who do people say that I am? What answers do people give today? They don't tend to say John the Baptist or Elijah, I don't think. It used to be very common for people to say, oh, he's a good teacher. I recently heard someone describe him as a Jewish rabbi whose reputation got out of hand. Or other people would say he's simply a fable, never existed. Some would be less charitable and say he was an opportunist who abused the naivety of his followers to create this legend of himself. Well, as I said already, the best way to judge those opinions is not by listening to who they come from, but actually by going back to these ancient documents like Mark's Gospel and read the evidence for ourselves. What a privilege we have to do that. And I think this is telling in Mark chapter 8 because, well, as the numbering suggests, there's already been Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Jesus has already been doing things before we got to this bit. And the people who observed him most closely were these 12 disciples who Jesus asks the question of. And so he asks them, all right then, well, based on what you've seen and what you've heard, seeing Jesus heal the sick, seeing Jesus calm a storm, seeing Jesus cast out evil spirits, seeing Jesus forgive sins, seeing how Jesus teaches God's Word, what do you think, he says? Who do you say that I am? That's verse 29. And what a question to hang out there. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up as he usually does, but he does seem to be acting as a spokesperson for the group here, and he answers very simply, verse 29, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. The Christ. Another word for Christ is Messiah. You are the Messiah. And there's, there's a lot behind that word. Um, we have the Old Testament in our Bible that tells the story of ancient Israel, of how God called Abraham and gave him the promise that he would make him into a great nation and through him would bless all the nations on earth. And running right the way through the Bible story is this promise that there is one coming who will rescue humanity, rescue humanity from its lostness, from its being turned away from God and bring them back. And in particular for Israel, all of those hopes were wrapped up in a king coming. And that's what they understood by the term. God's promised king would come to restore Israel to all of its strength and good fortune. And so Peter says, 
all that we've seen, all that we've heard, we've come to this conclusion, you are the Christ. That's more than a prophet. They'd seen more, they'd heard more, and this was their conclusion. You are the Christ. You're the one who's going to free us from our enemies and bring us back to being God's blessed people. And you see here that Jesus does not correct them. Now, you would expect, if they'd got this wrong, that Jesus would say, now, hang on a minute, lads. Let's not get carried away. You could get into a lot of trouble speaking like that. That's not who I am. But that is not what Jesus does. He simply says, if I were not told what he says, he says he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It's as if he's saying, you've got it, but the world's not ready to hear this yet. They had seen and recognized who Jesus is. But you see, this is only part of this is only part of the story. Because Jesus is then going to tell them not just who he is, but he's going to tell them why he's here. And we're going to see why they needed to hear this extra information. Because you see, something new happens in verse 31. This is the first time the disciples have clearly declared that they understand Jesus is the Messiah. And so now Jesus is ready to teach them this next thing. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Notice Jesus says this is what must happen in verse 31. He must suffer many things. This is a far cry from the people's expectations of what would happen when this promised king arrived, right? It's hard for the disciples to hear. Hang on, we thought you were the king who was going to come and defeat our enemies. You being killed doesn't add up. And so you see that Peter, uh, he has the audacity to take Jesus aside and to to tell him off. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, verse 32. Because you see, Peter's vision of what the Christ should be didn't include this. And add into that, well, we're your followers. So if you're heading there, where are we heading? And there is something unusual here, isn't there? When we are aware of potential danger, we avoid it, don't we? Like in theory, this is, this is why we have weather forecasts, right? They're there to help us avoid unnecessary trouble and danger. But that's not the case for Jesus. He understands that this is what lies in front of him, and he doesn't flee. He doesn't avoid it. He tells them, no, this must happen. This is his mission. This is why he's, why he's here. And when Peter rebukes him, Jesus has to rebuke him in return, and he says that this plan, this rejection and suffering and death, these are the things of God. That's what he says in verse 33. And for him to avoid those things would be, would be for him to pursue the things of man. 
And for Peter to try and dissuade Jesus from thinking like this is doing the work of Satan. So you could say Jesus feels very strongly about this, that this is where he's heading and what he's here for. And what Jesus spends this journey to Jerusalem doing is teaching his disciples that now they've figured out who he is, they need to understand why he's here. And if you read on, you find he tells them the same thing again in chapter 9, the same thing again in chapter 10. This is what they need to understand about Jesus. He has not come simply to ascend to a throne like an earthly ruler. He has come to be rejected and to, and to die. And to understand why that could be necessary, we need to understand that actually our greatest enemy the greatest enemy we have that needs to be defeated is not one that lies out there somewhere. It's very easy to think, isn't it, that our biggest problems are, well, it's the people who mistreated us. It's the opportunities that we didn't get. It's been the disappointments and the losses in life. And all of those things are real. All of those things are painful, and Christ has come to bring comfort and help in the midst of all of those things. But he has come to show us that actually our biggest problems aren't out there. They're in here. The biggest problem we have is that we don't know God. We've turned our backs on God. We love things more than we love God. We love ourselves more than we love God. And that is the greatest thing that we need to be rescued from. And there's only one way to be released from that. Here's how Jesus speaks about it in Mark chapter 10. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life was the ransom payment needed to free us from sin, from our small lives that are just lived for our own pleasure so that He might open the door for us to have a life lived with God, life now and life forever. And this is why Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. It's the only way. And so then, if this is who he is and this is what he's come to do, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I think this remains the most surprising part of all. Many people are shocked to hear Jesus' words here. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The way of following Jesus is one of self-denial. When he speaks about taking up your cross, it is, I mean, why does anyone in the first century take up a cross? It was to die upon it. It is a message that says you die to yourself if you're going to follow Jesus. And in fact, these are the things that have just been declared in this small tank here. Both Jen and Margaret declared 
in being submerged in that water. I am dead. I'm not living for me anymore. It's a very simple turnaround in some ways, isn't it? To say that I found something that is far more compelling than just living for what I feel like living for. I found this Messiah, this Christ, this Savior. And so where my desires are at odds with his desires, I will follow him. That's the kind of life Jesus is calling people to. But it's not just a message of self-denial because what it means to follow Jesus is also life. That's the kind of language that he speaks about here. In much the same way as for Jesus, the rejection, the suffering, even his death, they were not the end of the story. In the same breath, he said to his disciples, and after three days rise again, Well, there is a resurrection ahead for every believer in Jesus Christ, to be resurrected by Christ, resurrected with Christ, and resurrected to be with Christ forever. It is the hope of life beyond the grave. And his own resurrection from the dead, promised here in these verses, is the token of that promise for every one of his followers. But even more than that, it is the reality of life now. It is to give your life to something, to be willing to spend your life on what you were created for, Look at how Jesus describes this in verse 35. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Now, when you hear those words, it should sound like a big ask. It should do. It feels like a lot to, I put it this way, to give up. But Jesus' reasoning is very simple here. What value can you put on your life? What possible value could you put on your life? That's how Jesus encourages us to think about this. He says, of course, you could choose to to live your your life for yourself. You could invest all your energies in, in trying to get whatever your heart desires. And even if you were the most successful person who's ever lived and managed to do that. Let's say, verse 36, you even managed to gain the whole world. There yet remains one problem for you, and that is that you're going to die. And you'll have gained the whole world, and yet you'll have lost your life. When he uses the word soul here, he probably means it in the sense of whole life everything about you. In order to gain the whole world, you gave up the most precious thing you have, your soul. How 
And Jesus is saying that when we see him in that light, when we see his preciousness, that he gives us life, then there's nothing that we will think of as as being such a big ask to give up. He calls us to come to him, to follow him, by dying to self and putting him first. Friends, I'm not here to tell you to trust in Jesus and find that you'll have a life that is an easy glide from here to heaven. Ask pretty much any Christian in this building right now and they'll tell you that has not been their experience. And it's not what Jesus says. He says, in effect, when you become a Christian, you are in for the fight of your life. You're entering a world of self-denial. Well, why would you have to deny yourself if, if everything was all straightforward and easy? It's because there will be this competing desire to want to serve myself rather than to serve the Lord. He says you're entering into a world where well, you'll be shamed. That's how he speaks about it in verse 38. In this adulterous and sinful generation, will we be ashamed of Jesus and his words? He says that's the kind of fight that you'll be entering into, and yet it is to enter a world where you have Jesus every step of the way. And so at last to the controversy. Everyone's got an opinion on everything. And it applies to this as well. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Maybe you're here today and you're not sure. I encourage you to do something to get sure. Read the Gospels and see. If you don't have a copy of the Gospels, speak to me or anyone who you've met on the way in here. We'll be delighted to put those in your hand. Opening the words of this Gospel, Mark, he says at the very start of this book, he says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his conviction as he writes the Gospel, and he writes all 16 chapters to convince you that's the case. But when you become convinced of that, when you can say that, life is never the same again. Because actually you see who it is that has been given for you as your ransom. You see that it is the Messiah, the Son of God. And when you see Jesus through that lens, you do not want to live for yourself anymore but for him, whatever the cost.